This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. When you need your bank, Capital One is right in the palm of your hand. So you can check your balance, deposit checks, pay bills, and transfer money from your phone with a top-rated app. And when you're done banking, put it back in your pocket. A banking experience built around you and your life. This is Banking Reimagined. Get started online anytime. What's in your wallet? Capital One NA, member FDIC. This is a BBC Radio 4 archive edition of Alistair Cook's Letter from America. Good morning. On a balmy weekend in April 1961, the most novel item of news that I might have talked about was the fact that in the 27-year-old national golf tournament called the Masters, held in brilliant hot weather amid the towering pines and the azalea bushes of Augusta, Georgia, for the first time a foreigner, a South African, was on his way to winning the tournament. In what professional golfers tend to call the outside world, which you and I know as the world, nothing very remarkable was happening. Nothing, anyway, calamitous or politically significant that need prevent me from doing a light, odd, I hope, entertaining letter from America. I forget now what it was about, but within a day or two, I learned what it ought to have been about. A well-known radio critic in England was ready to take a deep breath and deliver a raspberry in my direction. It's at once a blessing and a curse of radio that the listener, however sophisticated, believes, unless he's directly reminded otherwise, that the speaker is talking to him now. Well, it happened that, as usual, my talk had been recorded just before the weekend, for its usual transmission on a Sunday. Unfortunately for me, it also happened that late on the Saturday evening our time, one Yuri Gagarin, the first Soviet astronaut, they called a cosmonaut, had made the first orbit of the Earth. On the Sunday morning papers, the name of Gagarin blazed from the headlines from Glasgow, to Tokyo. This good English critic chose that Sunday to hear what I had to say about it, and was appalled to hear whatever fluff or fun and games I was going on about. And he wrote his piece. Need I say that 42 years later his words still retain a touch of their original irritation? Like, like a hair in the mouth, I haven't seen his magazine since he wrote the damning sentence, but I can quote it. When the last hydrogen bomb has fallen on the American mainland, you may be sure that good old Cook will be waffling away in New York as usual. I tell you this deplorable story in order to stress a point. The point I want to make for critics, listeners, young and old, in Hong Kong or John O'Groats, is that this talk is being recorded at 9.30 in our morning on Friday, the 21st of March.
By the time you hear it, whether on Friday evening or Sunday or Tuesday evening in New Zealand, anything might have happened. Iraqi border guards may have surrendered in droves or not. Hundreds of Scud missiles might have whizzed toward Kuwait or Tel Aviv. Saddam himself, pray the Lord, might have suddenly flown the coop and gone into safe exile on the Riviera, Paris, perhaps. In an interview last Sunday, President Chirac admitted with an indulgent smile that, yes, indeed, he had called Saddam a friend. So these must be mere passing thoughts after about 36 hours of the war. First, in the week before the war was declared, the most striking and to me the most unexpected development was a movement in American popular opinion. Three weeks ago, before we heard from the 15 nations on the Security Council, the number of Americans approving the war was 55%. If it happened with the sanction of the Security Council, then came the last of the interminable debates conducted in the glum atmosphere of impending vetoes from France and Russia and, at best, an abstention from China. Secretary Jack Straw's proposed second resolution was practically a rewrite of the first and second council resolutions way back in the early 90s. He made it very clear what was true at the start, but has been increasingly fudged down the years, that the burden of proof was wholly and always on Sanama's part. The United Nations inspectors were never required to go out on a treasure hunt. There was a time when one or two top advisers of the president, the president was then Mr. Clinton, had the idea that it was time for the United States and any available allies to plan an early invasion of Iraq without the UN's permission. Now remember that all through the Cold War, for two or three decades. There had been scores of wars never even brought up before the United Nations. The Security Council stayed politely on the sidelines. Mr. Bush's decision last autumn to bring up Iraq only served to advertise the Going It Alone initiative, which had been routine since the end of the Second World War and which today led some statesmen with very scant knowledge of recent history to start bellowing, the United States is defying the council. Well, this uh, passing thought of the Clinton administration was passed over almost in the moment of its conception. For whatever moral authority President Clinton had built up during his six, seven years in office was in shreds. The famous old American novelist Norman Mailer has just celebrated his 80th birthday by airing the theory that our present woes in Iraq can be traced to Monica Lewinsky, the White House intern with whom President Clinton had a squalid sexual encounter. I doubt that anyone apart from Mr. Mailer embraces this theory, but I must admit, it has a tasty grain of truth to it. 
But I was trying to discover what caused a dramatic rise in the percentage of the American people's support for the war. The council debates were watched, listened to, by an astonishing 80 million of adult Americans. There has been that I know of no poll or study to see what caused the change. I have to guess that three men were the main persuaders. Secretary of State Powell, first of all, who had been the most reluctant warrior all through last fall, but now grit his teeth and put forward what he'd known for years, the precise amount of Saddam's arsenals of anthrax, VX, and two other deadly gases which had been reported in the late 90s, but throughout all the recent inspections never exposed. At one critical point in the debate, Secretary Powell said, in effect, just take the key, unlock the door, and say, look, we forgot these, or look, we have destroyed them. Even the French ministers believe he has them hidden, and two days ago flashed their first light on the dark scene by saying that if Saddam dared to use a biochemical weapon by way of retaliation, they might join the fight. After Secretary Powell, there was the team of Prime Minister Blair and Secretary Jack Straw. Mr. Straw's plain talk was a breath of fresh air in a dungeon of jargon. And, like nobody else speaking in favour of the war, Prime Minister Blair made the same simple, damning argument over and over and spoke as a man deeply believing that this was an honourable act to save first the Middle East and then the rest of us from a ghastlier war next year or the one after that. And then there was the President, a little strange, don't you think, that I've gone so long without mentioning him? To be frank, I have to say that from the beginning of his presidency, I have come to deplore the abruptness of his administration's diplomacy. Indeed, its constant lack of diplomacy. I'll give one example to stand in for many. The Kyoto Treaty. The United States might have gone to the European and other capitals and said quietly, we know that over 150 nations have had scientists working on this and persuaded you to sign it. We did so ourselves, but after long thought, we've decided not to ratify it. Instead, one day the president woke up and announced in a tone of bravado and seeming defiance, the United States will not ratify the Kyoto Treaty. Horror! Outrageous! cried every European foreign office and newspaper. The new president was a trigger-happy bully and a cowboy. No nation I heard of among the horror-stricken remarked, by the way, we haven't ratified it ourselves, have we? One nation, Romania, wasn't it, ratified it. Now, the public build-up to the confrontation with Saddam was, the administration's critics contend, too rhetorical, too long-winded, and offering different war aims from day to day. And many people, otherwise sympathetic to the president, 
if not to his view of a Woodrow Wilson Christian crusade, have been more embarrassed than impressed by his speeches. Because, though often well-written, they sounded like a bad actor reciting good words. But, but, I do believe that Mr. Bush's ultimatum speech on Monday was exactly right. It was short and somber and sounded like the speech of a simple man facing up to what he believes to be an awesome and unpredictable duty. But a duty, first of all. Anyway, a month before the last council debate and the president's ultimatum, only 39% of the people were in favor of, so to speak, going it alone. Today, 71%. It's also my guess that the television scenes of the reservists, the more than 100,000 ordinary young men and women leaving daily jobs and their families, I believe lots of us for the first time felt for them with a touch of guilt. As I talk, the support has gone up still higher after we learned of the 13 million pamphlets dropped on Iraq to explain the elaborate precautions the United States military is taking to try and avoid or protect civilians. This effort has, by the way, taken months of work of a special division in the Defense Department, and I should hope it might do something to soften or temper the picture of Secretary Rumsfeld as Wild Bill Hickok. That was Letter from America with Alastair Cook. You can find more Letters from America and thousands of other programmes for curious minds on the Radio 4 website.